Welcome to On the Edge with Liza Pullman. On the Edge explores the frontier of human potential. What really is possible? Experts in medicine, business, science, and belief systems divulge methods and pathways to productivity, profitability, well-being, freedom, and happiness. Now, here's your host, Liza Pullman. Welcome. Today, on the edge, I am excited to be sharing the hour with Robin Oaks. Robin Oaks is an educator, campus speaker, grassroots activist, and editor of the Bi Woman Quarterly, and two anthologies, the 42 Country Collection, Getting By, Voices of Bisexuals Around the World, and Recognize, the Voices of Bisexual Men. Among other things, she crafted the definition of bisexuality that is used by many bi plus activists around the world. This spring, she was named by Teen Vogue as one of nine bisexual women who are making history. And she has chosen to represent Massachusetts on the Advocates 50 States, 50 Heroes list. Robin is deeply committed to intersectional and sustainable activism to working with others to build coalitions across identities and across social movements, to supporting emerging leaders and to continually learning and growing. An activist for 50 years so far, she is in it for the long haul. I want to start by saying that some people may be listening to this and thinking, What does this have to do with me? And I'm going to tell you everything. Is that true, Robin? Not everything, but I hope to share a lot. (laughs) I don't know. I think this is a very important subject that can hit everyone. But before we get into why this has everything to do with you, listener, let's learn more about Robin's work. Robin, you've been advocating for giving a voice to bisexuality and gender identification for more than 40 years. A lot has happened in that time. What has happened? Oh, there has been so much change. Um, I would say that the biggest change that's happened is simply that there is a conversation happening um, in the mainstream. There Conversations have been happening for a long time, but they were happening in the margins and the corners and most people weren't even aware that there was a conversation to be had. So now, you know, when I first came, I came out as bisexual 41 years ago <laughs> and so, so much has changed since then in terms of awareness. One of them is the internet. You know, the internet has allowed people to have worldwide conversations. It's allowed people to get information. Um, when I speak to young people, and ask them, you know, when you first realized that you weren't straight or that you weren't cisgender. And by the way, cisgender means identifying with the gender that you were assigned at birth. Mm-hmm. So if when you were born, someone said it's a girl and you identify now as a woman, that's cisgender. So anyway, um, you know, when I talk to people and they, they say, well, when I first realized I wasn't cisgender or, or that I wasn't straight, um, 
here's what they say. They say, I went to the internet. Um, specifically, um, Tumblr, um, YouTube and Google searches. And then the other thing they say is they talk to their friends. And, you know, so three of those four things were not available back when I first came out. And another major change is simply representation on television. When I first came out, there was not a single lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender character on television, period. We were not covered. Yeah, it is unbelievable. We were not covered in the news. We were not anywhere. Like there was just this, this silence. And so the fact that there are conversations has, has really shifted everything. Well, and I remember, first of all, I'm of the generation. I, I think we're in the same generation. We're probably about the same age. Um, that people were terrified, terrified of coming out in any way as anything but cisgender. Love the terms. Learning, love the learning of new vocabulary. And I remember when Will and Grace came out. I don't know if that was one of the earlier shows where someone actually came out adamantly outside of their cisgender. And it was fully embraced, but it still probably didn't transcend everything. Well, it's interesting because I think actually Ellen, I think she may have preceded Will and Grace by a little Mm -hmm. bit. But when Ellen came out, both as a person, as a human being, you know, she came out personally and also came out as the character on her show came out. And that cost her her show. Yeah, I remember that. Cost her show. It also put a big dent in her career. There was a, after her show was canceled, there was a period of time where she was not being asked to be on television. She was not invited to do another show. And eventually, you know, she did get invited to do another show. And now she's everybody's, you know, favorite talk show host. She, one of my favorite moments was, I still remember this. It was shortly after Ellen had come back on the air with her own show. And I was, I travel all over the country as a speaker and I was sitting in a restaurant, a breakfast area in a hotel in Kansas somewhere. And, you know, Ellen was on the big screen that they had in the room and all these, you know, Kansas ladies were with their really nice coiffed hair was just sitting there, you know, smiling up at Ellen on the screen. And I thought, wow, this is not, this is not the world that I, that I remember. This is a different world. You know, everybody, People love Ellen, and, and I think she has done so much to change the conversation. She has, just by being her sweet, quirky, funny, mm-hmm. kind, generous self, has. I think that's often what it takes. It's people feeling that they know somebody. Mm-hmm. Well, kindness has a lot of power in and of itself. I mean, at some point, kindness and love do overpower the negativity, but it does take time, as Ellen showed. Yeah. But even though... It did pop, for lack of a better word, in in television, where then it was more entertainment. It still was challenging outside of that world in many, many places, not only in this country. I mean, it's throughout the world. Well, I mean, the history, historically, if you were not, if you were LGBT of any of any kind, and people found out about it, that was a career killer. Mm. And that still in some places is, is true. Um, unfortunately, in many places that has changed, you know, that more and more people have come out. 
I believe that the marriage equality movement is in part responsible for some of that shift in that while advocating for marriage equality, there were so many people who spoke up and said, hello, me too, me too. You know, I'm in a same-sex couple. I am part of, you know, a couple. I have a woman partner. Um, and that that changed. I think that really helped people all over the country understand that they knew people who were LGBT. Um, the There's been some polling done over the years and the number of people who realize that they know someone who's LGBT has gone way up. It used to be shockingly low and now it's, now it's, you know, a vast majority. Um, I still believe that every single human being in this country knows someone who's LGBT, but they may not know that yet, but the the numbers are, are definitely moving in the right direction in terms of awareness, because you, as long as you think, think of something as an abstract concept, it's harder to wrap your mind around it. Once you realize, oh, I know this person and they're bisexual, or I know this person and they're transgender, I know this person who's a lesbian, that makes it real, that makes it possible for them to understand that we are actually human beings who go to work and do laundry. You know, to, to say that someone's not a human being in and of itself is a frightening, frightening thought. But, you know, I, I also note that many people who had very strong opinions about it mm-hmm. would then have someone in their family exactly. who would come out, you know, I mean, who came to mind for me, and this is also generational, was Dick Cheney, you know, where you just had, you lose your sense of argument when your own kin, people you love, right? you have to recognize is full and whole, regardless of their choices. Right. And that's, for me, the power of, well, the power of coming out is twofold. One is, it makes you feel valid and real and it it makes you feel authentic. And on the other hand, it helps other people understand. I love coming out. I come out to people everywhere. I have, I actually have a lot of fun with it. Just Um, like watching their reactions. You mean? Well, yeah. So I, I, as someone, you know, I travel all over the country and Mm -hmm. one of my, one of my, um, I don't know what I, it's not a game. It's not entertainment, but one of my, um, Things that I do when I'm traveling is I, I sometimes just decide I'm going to just be, I'm going to be myself. I'm going to be honest. And as a person whose profession is a speaker and a writer, that is actually fairly easy because one of the most common questions strangers ask you is, Oh, so what do you, are you traveling for business? And then I say yes. And they say, Well, what business are you in? And then I can, I, I say, well, I'm an educator. I'm a speaker. I'm a, I'm a, you know, campus speaker. And they say, so what do you speak about? And then if I'm not in the mood to really engage, I'll sometimes just say identity and sexuality because that sounds more vague or more general. And sometimes I'll say, well, I, my focus is on bisexuality or I do LGBT, you know, education. And what's interesting is that Every single time I do that, my fear is that the person I'm speaking to will cringe or back away or, and once in a while that actually happens. I remember there was one time on a plane, this woman asked me the question and and she was some fundamentalist um, person who was coming from some religious convention and she backed away from me. She was 
squished into her corner. Like she could not get enough space from me. Like she, I was in the middle seat and she was at the window and she just cringed away from me for the rest of the flight. And that didn't feel good. That felt terrible. I'm making a joke out of it, but it was, mm-hmm. it's not a good feeling. Well, and I, you know, interestingly, it wasn't a good feeling for you, but the impact on her, you know, was probably, you know, as strong, if not more significant, that she had to wiggle around in that space of discomfort um, that bordered on severe judgment, if not severe judgment, and which is not a nice place to be for anyone. It's not. But then, so that, that happened. Like, so, and so my fear, every time I, I answer the question, I'm always afraid that someone will have a negative reaction. But my experience, my actual experience is that most people respond in ways that are very, um, positive. Um, I remember one time I, I was going through security and you know, going through the place where they check your license yeah. and your boarding pass and then you go through the conveyor and, this man, there was a man and a woman, an older man and a woman in front of me online. And the man said, so what are you, are you traveling for business? And I said, yes. And he said, what's your business? I said, well, I do LGBT education. He said, oh, my son is gay. <laughs> and he proceeded to tell me all about his son. I, I found out so much about his son. who was 30 something years old. And I found out what he did for a living, where he lived, what his partner's name was. And it's so funny because the woman he was with, who I presume was his wife, was just cringing. She was like, oh, like, Harold, stop it. <laughs> but you like, know what? But, it's but the power just, of being real, right? Yeah. And it opened this door. Yeah. And that people, people are dying, right? Yeah. People are starving to talk about themselves. And this happens to me a lot. Another time I was on a plane and I got bumped, actually. We, we, I volunteered to get bumped on one of the airlines. And I was on a plane in Wisconsin. And we, the other person who also volunteered was this guy in a very nice business suit. And same thing, like we're traveling together, we're waiting together. And he said, so what do you do for a living? I said, well, I, I'm a speaker and blah, blah, blah. I said what I did. And he said, his response was, oh, my daughter is president of her campus LGBT group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just thought, this is this is what we need to do. We need to talk about this more. We need to just be real. We need to be honest. We need to be authentic. And there are so many people, as you just said, who are starving, who are hungry to talk about the people in their life who they love. And they're also afraid that if they bring it up, that other people will have a negative response. But mm-hmm. I just I just want to keep opening that door. And what, you know, it's the level of connection that's created by you being real and you being you allows them to step into who they really want to be and shed their own fears and inhibitions. And the fear is often just, you know, it's, there's so much fear of how other people will respond. And I know there are a couple of people in my own family who are very comfortable with me as me. And they're personally not uncomfortable with me, but their discomfort actually comes from worrying about how their friends will respond or how their friends would respond if they knew. Mm. And again, it's that fear of the reflection. And I think parents deal with that a lot when their kids come out. Like maybe they're comfortable and they love their kid and they're not, you know, they're, they're all hundred percent there for their kid, but their fear is how will Aunt Sally, you know, respond? What about my, very conservative next door neighbor. What about this one? What about that one? Um, what about 
the grandparents, you know, that they're worried about other people's negative response and they're, we're all afraid of being rejected. I mean, that's a human, I think we want to be accepted. We want to be affirmed. And so parents have the same challenges that kids have. So let's, this is really getting at the core of why everyone needs to really connect to this topic because there's a significant cost of people not stepping in and fully accepting people for who they are. And it starts around what you and, you know, others call the binary construction. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about um, human beings in the United States is that we have a tendency to put complex, nuanced things into pretend simple binaries. Mm-hmm. We do that with race. When most people think about race in the United States, they think of black and white. It's the same challenge with race. And if you think of who gets left out of that construction, I mean, that it's, you know, people who are bi and multiracial, um, entire racial categories are omitted from that construction, but it persists. Like that binary persists, that pretend false binary persists. When people think about gender, they think man, woman. You know, but the fact is there are people who identify as neither of those things or as a mix of those things or as one of those things ish, but not entirely like, you know, it's much more complicated than that. Um, the political binary in this country is intense. You know, if you think about it, Democrat, Republican, mm-hmm. um, left wing, wing, left wing, right wing, conservative, liberal, they're all phony binaries. They are all false. Most people are much more complicated than that. Politics, politics itself is much more complicated than that. So one of my, my, my things is I like, I call myself a professional binary smasher. I have have my little imaginary superhero cape and, you know, one of my jobs is to just kind of remind people that things are complicated and that that's not a problem. That's a, it's a feature, not a flaw. Well, and it leads to everyone that I know knows a Brene Brown and it falls into the whole shame category. I mean, what happens is, is that if you, I, I don't know anyone that falls clearly into those two categories, right? Anyone, you know, they may want to identify in that because it feels safe, but the reality is, is that it's just a label and by creating the labels and wanting to identify people by limited number of labels, in this case two. It causes people to have shame and fear and not want to fully express themselves. Yeah, and I, I actually think that some people do fall neatly into some of these pretend binaries, but I would guess that almost everybody in some way or other, you know, is violates some binary rule, whether it's in how they express their gender, whether it's in their politics, whatever it is. And, and so I just think that if we can open up a conversation and be complicated and nuanced and messy and that understand that that's not, we don't need to be contained in these strict compartments that it's okay if things are, things are, if there's this rainbow of, of diversities, it just, it's an okay thing. It's It's actually, it's beautiful. And everyone is even more beautiful for being their unique selves. And on this note, we, oops, sorry, Robin, we need to take a short break. I've been speaking with speaker, teacher, writer, and activist Robin Oaks about her powerful work, 
raising awareness and giving a voice to bisexuality and gender identification. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to On the Edge. Here's Liza Pullman. I am speaking with Robin Oaks, a powerful advocate and voice for the rights of bisexuals and gender identification. Robin, welcome back. Thank you. So we left off talking about the power and beauty of people being able to self-express whoever they are. Yeah, and I, I think it's powerful, it's beautiful to be able to express who you are, and it's also dangerous and unhealthy if you feel that there are parts of yourself that are unacceptable, that cause you shame, that cause you, that make you fear you're going to be rejected. And so, you know, both, there are both sides of that, both the beauty of expression and also the dangers of silence. So what... I'm curious, what hasn't shifted when you're going around the country? What do you see is not yet shifting? Well, what I see is that there is a tremendous amount of change over time throughout the United States, but it's also clear to me that change is uneven. Mm. Um, sometimes there are some places I go and I feel like I'm in the 1950s in some ways. Um, there's, you know, the conversations have barely even begun. Um, and in those places, there are pockets of people. There are these little bubbles or pockets of people who are, in fact, creating this very, I'd say, advanced progressive um, framing and understanding of gender, of sexuality, um, of identity. Um, but in some places, the pockets are very small. Mm-hmm. And and struggling. It's it's very hard to be, you know, a small little island in a sea of of unacceptance. And so, my my goal, my hope is that that change will keep on spreading more and more widely. And I think that's one of the challenges that um, LGBT plus activists face is. Both, both doing our own thinking about identity and doing our own thinking about sexuality, um, and sharing that with one another. But also, how do we expand the circle? How do we spread that information beyond the people who already are talking about it? How do we help people outside that bubble, you know, understand it? And there's also, I think, because the gap can be really huge between, um, our framing of the world and and mainstream framing, it can be a, it can be it can sometimes feel overwhelming. Like, how do you even explain this complicated and nuanced understanding of gender and sexuality to people who have never had a conversation about this and 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 do so in a way that you can actually be heard? Because I can I can say things in a way where I know I'll be right. But I may not. That may not result in me being heard. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's always a challenge. It's always a challenge. 
Yeah. So it's like my, my challenge, I, I think as an educator, I spend a lot of time thinking about how can I talk about this stuff in a way that will actually be accessible. And one of my favorite things is to take academic ideas, academic theory, and and translate them into language that you know an eighth grader can understand, that someone who has never been to college can understand, that someone who has never studied in that particular field can understand. Because you can have a PhD in something and still never have studied um, identity or sexuality. You can you can be very very educated, but not in that particular area because most education in this country is very, very um, funneled, very, very specific. And so you can know a lot about a few things and not be familiar with other things. So that's my challenge is how do we make this accessible? How do we spread it? How do we share it in a way that is interesting and accessible? So I was on uh, Facebook a week or so ago and there was a photo of a friend of mine that they had posted. And in the photo, there was a person wearing a sweatshirt or T-shirt that said gender is over. And I was like, what is that T-shirt? And I, and I, I go to the website. It's called gendersover.com. And they had a paragraph that I thought did an amazing job of kind of capturing where I am in my head which is they say we don't yet live in a post-gender world. And, you know, I feel the same way as we talked about in the first segment about race. We don't live in a post-race world yet where people can, you know, what someone's color, background, whatever is, is completely irrelevant to who they are as a person, that they can be their true essence. And the same is true with gender. And because gender violence and inequality are real, the Actually, identity is very important to dismantle the structures that reinforce inequality and associated violence. Our gender identities and expressions are therefore valid and should be respected. And it goes to this concept of really that having an identity is so important in this world. It is important. And oftentimes people will say, well, I don't understand why you have to keep on talking about this stuff. Like, like, I don't understand this. Like, why is this even important? Like, why don't you just shut up? And my feeling is I do, you know, like just be yourself is what I hear. Mm -hmm. And my belief on that is I would love to live in a world someday where sexual orientation is not assumed where gender identity is not assumed, where racial identity, for that matter, or political identity are not assumed, mm-hmm. but we do not yet live in that world. And one of the interesting challenges of sexual orientation and often gender identity is that it's not visible. Nobody looking at me will come to the immediate conclusion at first impression that I am not straight. And we are still part of a culture where heterosexuality is the default assumption. It is universalized. It is assumed. Um, you know, when you meet someone, you assume they're straight unless you happen to specifically know otherwise. And that's just, that's what it, that's the way it still is. And so I think the only way to change that is for people who are not straight to make themselves visible, to speak up, to make sure people understand their identity and to repeat it over and over and over until it's clear and only when we 
get to a point where people understand that you cannot tell someone's sexual orientation by looking at them, that there are so many people out there who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, straight-ish, all kinds of other things. Only when we get to that point where people know that will labels become unnecessary. And it is my hope that we can get to that point, but I think that the tools that we need to get closer to that are, in fact, endless repeated conversations about our identities. And that's that's just, I, I feel that that's not an option. It's not, Silence is not an option for me. Well, and I would also, and I, 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 it goes back to being curious about who other people are and curious in a kind, compassionate, loving way. And I think that you had said, you know, it's important for people to know that I'm bisexual because it's important for you, if you're heterosexual, for people to know about what's happening with your wife and your children. It's important for me to talk about my partner and whoever is in my life in equal terms and to know that they're as meaningful and important to me as your family is to you. Yeah, and it's interesting, though. As, as someone who um, identifies as bisexual and also is married to a woman, my wife and I have been together for 20 plus years. Wow. I think Congratulations, we're in, by the way. We're, we're, I think we're in season 21 right now. <laughs> and, you know, at, if you, if I didn't, when she, when we go out in public, people assume that we are lesbians. Mm-hmm. People see a woman couple together, they, they read lesbians the same way as people, when they see a man woman couple together, assume heterosexuals. And so when we go out in public, People, if they realize, people realize we're a couple, they say, oh, look at those lesbians. And so for her, that actually is a great way to come out because she identifies as a lesbian and people assume she's a lesbian. That's great. Yay. And so for her, that's a visibility thing. Um, for me, it just means that I become invisible in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Instead of being assumed I'm straight, now I get assumed to be lesbian. And, you know, as someone who identifies as bisexual, that still doesn't do the job. And I think one of the challenges of bisexual identity in particular is that People say, well, I don't understand. Like, why do you even have to talk about this? Like, why are you, why are you telling me this thing? You know, I don't go around telling people I'm straight. And, you know, again, back to the idea of assumptions, people assume heterosexuality. So heterosexual people don't have to tell people they're straight. And for me, you know, again, my partner does not do the job of making my identity visible. And so I have to tell people, and why does it matter? It matters to me as human being because I feel that to be understood as who I am, to be understood in my completeness, in my wholeness, means being visible as bisexual. Um, it also, for me as an educator, is also important because it sometimes offers me the opportunity to both um, be a visible role model um, for some people, I serve as a possibility model. Like the fact I've had so many people say to me, I have never before met an adult um, bisexual person. And sure, they have. They just didn't realize that because most bisexual people kind of, you know, end up in a partnership and they don't go around talking about it to everyone. But I feel like that just people say it gives me hope that I can be myself for the rest of my life. It gives me hope that it's possible to be a bisexual person and have a healthy, happy, you know, full life. And 
and that that's important. So I feel as an educator, it's important. And just as an individual to own my whole self and not be assumed to be one thing or assumed to be another. Um, for me, that that's an important part of my own integrity. Well, and I think there's, you know, I heard two things there. One is it goes back to the first segment when you were talking about how when you would open up what you do to people, that it then cr- opened this door of connection that was quite profound and beautiful. By being who you are, you open up these doors of connections to people that they didn't think existed. And it's also a means of showing people who you are and being fully expressed and how important that is not only for people to see you, but when you meet other people to see them in their wholeness. Yeah. And I was funny because I think that one of the things, when all the stuff I'm talking about, the ways that we assume things to be in simple binaries, I'm not exempt from that. When I meet people, when I meet a woman who has a male partner, I too assume heterosexuality. But what I try to remember to do all the time is to remind myself, wait, I don't know that. She might be heterosexual. She might not be. I don't know that. And so I try to, I don't think, I I don't think it's possible to really completely train your mind to be outside of the binary systems, but I think it is possible to remind yourself often that there's probably more than you are seeing that there's that you know, reality is more complicated than you may be seeing. And just remind yourself that I, I, I check myself a lot. I correct myself a lot. I step back and I think, wait, I don't know that. I don't know that person's racial identity for sure. I don't know that person's religious identity for sure. I don't know that person's gender identity for sure. I don't know what pronouns they use. I don't know their sexual orientation. I don't know anything about them mm-hmm. for sure except that they are a human being and they're alive and they're standing there, you know, in front of me right now. And so that's, that's, I think the process of just kind of checking yourself and stepping back and reminding yourself to adjust your vision and see more clearly. It doesn't matter how much work we've done on ourselves, how much education we have, how many places we've traveled in the world. It's a moment by moment exercise in like checking our own brains, sorting and classification and valuing process, which is exhausting. It's exhausting, but it's a necessary task. Exactly. And it's, it can be kind of fun when you, if you, if you go at it with the right attitude, like I sometimes, Mm -hmm. I try not to, um, to, I try not to get really upset with myself when I make an assumption and, and rather to, um, I try, I try to hold a, an attitude of amusement and that doesn't mean that I'm not accountable because I am, but I try to, you know, remember that I will sometimes trip. I will sometimes make the mistakes and that my job is not to never ever make a mistake or a false assumption, but rather to be as aware as I can possibly be and to do my best to, you know, to keep my mind open and and try not to make assumptions mm-hmm. and to ask questions when I'm not sure. Yeah, the self-love. It's important. Let's talk about um, Kimberly Crenshaw. Mm-hmm. She did a TED Talk that's gotten a lot of visibility. And her talk is about intersectionality and what it means to be excluded and how when we 
frame things in limiting ways, how, how that results in us creating social injustice mm-hmm. and inequality. Mm-hmm. And I use, I actually use um, almost every one of my programs includes some discussion of intersectionality. And thank you, Kimberly Crenshaw, for you know putting out that concept. And that's one of the things that I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to say in a way that is accessible. And, you know, when I talk about intersection, should I tell you what I say? No, you didn't. Should I? Yes, please. Okay. So <laughs> when I, uh, here's, here's what I've come up with over time. And, you know, cause my focus is on identity. And I think that oftentimes we, we flatten identity. We, when we hear the word gay man, we assume a singular experience. And one of the, one of the exercises I sometimes do in my um, programs is I'll say, okay, let's just take this idea, the gay man. And I'll say, quick, what race is he? And I'll ask people just to shout out without thinking, just like shout out whatever comes to your mind. And everyone says white. And I say, you know, how old is he? And they say twenties and thirties. And I say, what's his social class? And they say either middle class or upper, upper middle class or upper class. And I'll say, what's his body type? And they all say either twink like thin or buff like but but in great shape and i'll say and where does he live and everyone yells out whatever the nearest major city is right new york san francisco miami (laughs) miami right and so and then i'll and then i say so let's just think about that for a moment what percentage of actual gay men do you think meet all of those criteria and honestly i have no idea what the number is but I would bet you my entire life savings that the number is somewhere in the single digits. And yet when people think of the gay man, they conjure up this very specific image and stereotype completely. And it's, it's, and for me, this is when you think about, this is a a failure to think it's a failure to think critically. It's a failure to think intersectionally. So um, when I talk about intersectionally, intersectionality, first of all, I credit it. Intersectionality is a concept that comes from black feminist thought. It comes from the thinking and writing of black feminists. And um, Kimberly Crenshaw is the individual who coined the specific term intersectionality. And the essay that I read by, by her that really helped me understand the concept um, was one in which she wrote about her experience as a black woman. And what she wrote is that, and again, when I'm everything I ever say, I always try to make it really clear that I'm taking a long concept and making it short and simple because her thing is so much more nuanced and complex than this. But basically, yes, yeah, she wrote that when she experiences racism, she doesn't experience it as a black person, but rather in her wholeness as a black woman. When she experiences sexism, she doesn't experience it just as a woman, but rather in her wholeness as a black woman. And you and I often say, well, I ask the audience, do you think that black women and black men have a different experience of racism in the United States? And you know, the answer is clear when you look at who's more likely to get pulled over and arrested you know, while driving while black and so on and so forth. And so, you know, and just understanding that, that when we experience oppression, many of us have multiple um, identities that carry oppression and that gives us each a very specific and unique experience of oppression. And so coming back to that stereotype of the gay man, 
you know, if you are a gay man and you are also black or you are also poor or you also have a disability or, you know, you are also Muslim, you carry a very specific experience of oppression that is different from other men who are gay. And so that category gay man holds so many different experiences and so many different realities and you know, we have to remember not to compress that into a flat cardboard cutout stereotype, but rather to understand that every man, everyone who identifies as a man and gay also has other identities that shape and impact how he experiences his gender and how he experiences his sexual orientation. On that note, that very powerful note, we need to take a short break. I've been speaking with Robin Oaks about the importance of seeing people in their wholeness. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're on the edge on TalkZone.com. Here's Liza Pullman. Robin Oaks is with us. And if you haven't heard the first two segments, please go back and listen. This is very powerful work. In this hour, we're going to dive deeper into what it means to be seen as whole in terms of your sexual identity. Welcome back, Robin. Thank you. So, you know, we ended the last segment talking about intersectionality. And while you were talking about the complexity of how all these different components of who we are overlap, you know, how we identify ourselves sexually, what our race is, you know, religion, our upbringing, there's so many things that come into this. I was thinking about when every time that we interact with someone, we interact with someone from our own individual perspective and lens that is framed by our own individual sexual orientation, um, gender, religious experience, uh, upbringing, race, etc. And it's so important for people to really check, to check what's happening with themselves when they're interacting with another and really see the intersectionality of all this. Absolutely. And there are certain experiences which we, some of us have never had. I mean, as a white person, for example, I will never know. I can never know what it's like to experience racism in the United States. I cannot know. I can try my best to read other people's writing and listen to other people talk about that so that I can come close, but I will never know. I think someone who identifies as heterosexual or straight will never know what it's like to identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer. It's just like you can't know because it's not your experience. And someone who is cisgender really can't fully understand what it's like to be gender fluid or non-binary or transgender. Like It's just something that you can't really fully understand. But what we can do is listen to each other. Mm. And I try when there's something I realize I don't know a whole lot about. I try to just go and read and, you know, find anthologies. I love anthologies. That's in fact why I've I've edited two anthologies. And part of that is for that very reason. Um, One is simply, I think to understand people's experience, you need to listen to them, tell their stories. And get curious, ask them, what's it like? What's it like to be you? Yeah, and when you throw in, um, when you include the idea of intersectionality, 
Um, intersectionality has made me more and more, the idea of intersectionality has made me more and more committed to the idea of anthologies. I used to believe that I could just get up in front of a room and tell people my personal life story and everyone would then, after that, understand what it's like to be bisexual. But that's not real. I, that does not do the job because my story is one story. It's very specific. It's based on the other specific, you know, my experience as a bisexual person is based on my age. It's based on where I grew up geographically. It's based on my family of origin and their politics and their, you know, religious perspective. It's based on, on, you know, my race. It's based on my social class. It's based on the fact that I had access to higher education. It's based on so many things. And, you know, I really believe that to understand what it's like to be bisexual, for example, you need to hear many stories. You need mm-hmm. to listen to many different people share their accounts. And if you take all those things together and amalgamate them and, you know, weave them together in your mind, then with all those stories together, you can start to understand something about the experience of being bisexual, like, but not through one story, through many. Right. Right. No, I mean, the stories are endless. Every single human being has their own unique story. And we have so much more to gain by being listeners than being talkers, unless we're telling our story. And to someone who's curious. I agree with you completely. I I, I think that it's, it's interesting because underneath this entire conversation, which is ostensibly about identity and, you know, gender and sexuality, there is, is that really important universal message that we would be much wiser if we would listen to each other better and that, that there's a value in that. And there's also a beauty in that. I love um, reading other people's stories of their experience. I love watching people tell me their stories. I love listening to them. It's It, it makes my life richer. Not many things create as much emotion in me as really listening to someone's true, authentic story. Yeah. So let's talk about how we move this conversation into action. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this is the show, I think, I mean, there are so many different ways to do that. One is to create um, vehicles for transmitting information, um, like my two anthologies, Getting By, and you know, Recognize the Voices of Bisexual Men. Those are examples of vehicles. I think we need to definitely keep on working on mainstream media representations. We need to make sure that, that we are on television. We need to make sure we are on films and that we're represented in ways that aren't cardboard cutout stereotypes. It's interesting. And earlier you referred to Will and Grace. I mean, Will is kind of the perfect, not actually more Jack is the perfect example of that story. Like those stereotypes, actually both Will and Jack. Right. Huge stereotypes. They're really cute stereotypes, but they are, and they are beautiful and wonderful and they did help change people's perspective, but they are still a little bit um, flat in that they represent a tiny little sliver of all gay men. And yet culturally they have become stand-ins for like gay manhood. And I would love to see, I really want to see more um, gay identified characters on TV who are not white you know, upper middle class cisgender people. I want to see, um, I want to see more different, different faces, different stories, different experiences out there. Um, I want to see bisexual people represented on television whose bisexuality is not demonstrated through them having, you know, a whole 
slew of different partners. I want to see someone who just simply and proudly identifies as bisexual, and that is not the storyline, but just simply an aspect of who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, just like a piece of their identity. It's just kind of a given. Um, I want to see, um, you know, more lesbians on TV who are not serial killers. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> or transgender That's people who are not, you know, I want to see just like nice, regular transgender people who happen to be your next door neighbor or who happen to be, you know, your sister or your grandmother or grandfather. Like I, I want to see that more and more. And so I think that we need really need to keep on working with media stuff to support shows that do that and to call to account shows that are doing that very badly or not doing that at all. Um, I think we need to, um, what about the news, like in the news channels, in terms of writing in the mainstream papers? What do you see there? Are you seeing shifts in representation? I have to apologize. I don't watch television anymore, and I don't read papers. <laughs> wow, I do all the time. Mm-hmm. This morning I read the Washington Post and the Boston Globe so far. Um, I am seeing a shift. I think the mainstream media um, has really has done a much better job than it used to. I remember back in the very early days when we still weren't represented, I was part of a group of people who went and met with the Boston Globe, Mm -hmm. uh, some staff from the Boston Globe, and they said, well, what exactly is it that you want? And I said, I want to see us represented in news stories where the topic is not an LGBT topic. I said, Mm -hmm. I want, for example, an article on financial, you know, they have a column on financial planning. I want to see some of the people who are profiled in these financial planning columns be same-sex couples. Hmm. Um, I want to see an example of, um, it could be anything, like bicycle enthusiasts, like maybe mm-hmm. the uh, bike paths in Boston. I want to see some of the people who are interviewed be like a transgender bicyclist, like just like people Beautiful. who are where, that, where the bicycle, the bicycling is the theme, but where we just happen to be, I just want to see us represented throughout. And I want us to be woven into the fabric of, of media. And that actually is happening. And it, it's um, not every paper is doing it. Not every uh, media outlet is doing it, but it's definitely gone in the right direction. I think they've done better than most. And what about in education systems? I know you're really, really active in the, um, you know, collegiate level. But yes. what about high schools and middle schools where you see many kids are already self-identifying, but I'm not sure the schools are keeping pace with that. No, there's this fear. So schools are afraid of parents. Hmm. And as long as you have some parents in a given school system who think that any discussion or mention of sex, sexuality or identity is a terrible thing that will pollute their poor little children's brains. Mm. Um, schools tend to be very cautious and hesitant to um, do anything that might result in a in backlash. And so I think they tend to be fearful and, and cautious and conservative in, in that way. And I think that that's dangerous because the kids are so far ahead of the adults in this regard. Um, I had um, someone in my life who didn't want me to mention anything LGBT in front of his children. (laughs) Uh, This was a family member. And a couple of years later, I talked to one of his children and I said, so 
what's it like in your school? Do you, do you have a, a GSA, a gay straight alliance? And he said, oh, yeah. And, you know, like, it's like, I feel like, and, and kids know a lot more than we think they know. Kids are getting information. I think it's up to us to make sure they get good information because they, if we don't make sure they get accurate and good information, then they may get bad information that is simply not true, like in terms of sexual health. You know, they need to understand, say for sex, they need to understand this stuff to pretend that kids are never having sex. Some kids won't and some kids will, but all kids need to have that information for if and when that moment happens. Kids need to understand how things work and what's safe and what's not safe. Kids need to understand identity and sexuality because if they feel, and, and there's, there's all this data that shows that children who grow up in homes where they are accepted do so much better than children who grow up in homes where they are not accepted either. And not accepted can either mean that you're doubt, outright rejected, kicked out of their families for being LGBT, but it can also mean that fear that I can't tell my family who I am because if I probably not no longer love me, that they won't, they will reject me that when kids have that experience, they don't do well. Right. Well, you know, I work with those people who grow up and have, you know, whether it's in in any way in which they've been defined by their parents as young people and deprived of being who they really are, it bites them and it comes back to haunt them. And those people, ultimately the people that I end up working with in my work. So it's so important for people to fully embrace who their child is without restriction. And also going back to what schools are doing. I mean, these we're preparing our children to go into the world. And if they're not prepared to go into the world as seeing others as whole yeah. and seeing the diversity and the richness of our world, they're not prepared to go into the world. And yeah. they're going to be in for a shock, a shock. I agree. And this is actually one of the things about sexual orientation and gender identity is that most um, LGBT youth have cisgender heterosexual parents. And so if you grow up, um, for example, as a person of color in the United States, unless you're adopted into a white family, you have people helping you understand how to be you and how to navigate um, an inequitable, unfair, you know, messed up, polluted system. If you are a child who's transgender or who's bisexual or who's lesbian or gay, you may not have those role models. There's no one like helping you grow up learning how to navigate. And so mm-hmm. I, I just think the power, I think if adults, I, I really hope that if adults understood the power of affirmation, the power of support, the power of knowing that you are loved um, and how much it matters to their kids, it might change their, their behavior. Like it's, it could be a matter of life or death for those, those young people that they, get that kind of affirmation from their families and, and yeah. And, and, you know, and the data, the data is clear on that. The data is so clear on that. The kids that don't have that support have a much harder time. And it's not only life or death in the literal sense, it's life or death in the emotional psychological sense. So and and it's the same, because if you've been squashed as a human, whether you're physically alive, if you can't fully express, 
you feel numb and you essentially feel dead. So, you know, it's, it's powerful either ways. I agree with that. I think so. We have two minutes, two minutes, which is tragic. But I want to find out how people can learn more about your work and what you're doing in the world. If they want you to speak in their organization or their school, how can people get in touch with you? So, by the way, I speak at colleges, universities, high schools, community groups, and workplaces. Hmm. Um, and my website is robyn robin oaks.com. So it's robyn ochs.com. So robyn ochs.com. And yeah, on that website is a lot of information about the work I do. I post a lot of the articles that I've written. Um, I have a few links to videos. I um, even now have a YouTube channel, which I am just starting to populate, um, just starting to populate. And yes, yeah, so I travel all over the place and I've been, I've spoken now in about 15 different countries and in 46 U.S. states. And, and I just love my work. I love my work and I do believe that it makes a difference. And that's what keeps me going. It's, it's, it's exciting. It's wonderful. I also, I just want to, one thing I just want to add is that as I travel around, I learn so much from the people who I get to meet on the road. Like I learn so much. And one of my favorite things to do is to listen, learn, mm-hmm. and then try to wrap what I'm learning and what I'm hearing into my work so that my work is in this constant change, a constant state of evolution. And, and that for me is a very exciting thing. If I, I think if I just went out and gave the same talk over and over and over with no changes, I would, I would get bored, but I remain very, very excited about my work because I do keep learning and I do keep um, hearing things that I've never thought about before. And then I get to figure out how does this, how does this fit into the work I'm doing and what do I need to say differently and, and how can my work be even more effective? So it's an exciting, my work is a process, which is. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robin, for sharing yourself, who you really are. And your critically important work. I appreciate it. Thank you. We've just spent the last hour with speaker, teacher, writer, and activist Robin Oaks. For more information on Robin and her work, go to robinoaks.com. Find her on my page on TalkZone or at www.imaginaconsulting.com. Until next week, listen, expand your heart, and your mind. 